Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. So this is the very first episode of the new year, and as of the first week of January, Misconduct is officially three years old. Uh, it's a crazy milestone that I never really dreamed was possible when I first started, and the last three years have been amazing, and the podcast has taken me all over and allowed me to meet amazing new friends. So I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners and to anyone who has supported Misconduct over the years. And with that, let's get right into the episode. It's rare to have one serial killer in a family, let alone two. Brothers Larry and David Raines of Kalamazoo, Michigan, were born in the mid-1940s. They grew up with two sisters, one older and one younger, and their mother and their abusive alcoholic father. Their father worked as a gas station attendant, and their mother worked part-time. While we wouldn't bat an eyelid at this family dynamic nowadays, in the 1950s when the boys were growing up, this was considered to be more unusual. The boys were the middle children, and they were close in age with only one year between them, and because of that, they grew up as each other's competition. When the boys were 9 and 10, their father left their family to start a new life with a much younger woman in Florida. Although their father had been abusive and brought out their competitive nature with each other, his departure left a gap in the family. The boys tried to reconnect with their father as teens, but they were turned away and they gave up trying to bring their father back into their lives. The boys continued to compete in anything and everything, each determined to be the winner over the other brother. In high school, Larry and Danny both dated the same girl, Paula, who was on and off with both of the brothers. As well as dating Paula, Larry was seeing a much older woman. Sue was 10 years his senior and had three children. Larry would sneak out his bedroom window to see her and to help her look after her kids. Larry's life of crime began early. At 17, Larry and a friend stole a car, and the judge gave him two choices. He could serve his time in prison, or he could go join the military. Larry chose to enlist in the army, and less than a year later, he was in the brig for an attempted assault. After a violent outburst, where he chased after a group of men with a knife after someone stole his chips. He spent his last three months in the army in the brig before being discharged, and after being discharged, Larry went back home to Kalamazoo. 18-year-old Larry arrived home to find Paula and Danny happy in their relationship, 
so he rekindled things with Sue. Larry proposed to Sue on multiple occasions, and every time she would say no, Larry would fly into a rage and punch the wall. Following his failed proposal attempts, Larry would become depressed, and on December 23, 1964, he attempted to die by suicide. A state trooper found him in his car with the hose running from the exhaust into an open window. Larry was woozy and confused, but he was alive, and after 10 days in the hospital, he was diagnosed with a sociopathic personality and released with no follow-up care. Just four months later, Larry's killing spree began. It is reported that Larry was traveling around, hitchhiking and stealing cars to make his way. On the 5th or 6th of April, 1964, Larry arrived at a gas station in Battle Creek, Michigan, and robbed it at gunpoint. Vernon LeBen, a part-time attendant who was also in the Air Force, was working that day, and he was shot during the robbery. The time of the crime is unknown, but police believe that Vernon was shot some hours before he was discovered. When he was found, Vernon was alive, barely and was taken to the hospital for treatment. He died of his injuries 12 hours later, and he never regained consciousness, so he was never able to tell the police what happened. On April 20th, around 5.30 a.m., Larry arrived at another gas station, this time in Lexington, Kentucky. Larry had stolen a car and driven to this station where 38-year-old Charlie Sizemore was the attendant on duty that morning. During the robbery, Larry stole $125 from the cash register and shot Charlie twice in the head, leaving him for dead. At 5.40, two regular customers stopped by and found Charlie still alive but unconscious on the floor. Charlie was taken to the hospital where he died soon after. This time there was not a big gap between the shooting and the discovery of the victim, so the police thought they might be able to catch the shooter as soon as he left town. They set up roadblocks and stopped vehicles and questioned anyone that they thought looked suspicious. However, these roadblocks proved to be futile as Larry made it all the way to Florida in a stolen car before dumping it and making his way back to Missouri. Charlie's death rocked his small community, and the street he had lived on was renamed in his memory. On May 29, 1964, Larry was hitchhiking when he was picked up by Gary Smock, a teacher who was driving to his house. It isn't known why Gary stopped to give Larry a ride. Reports say that Gary was actually running late for dinner with his in-laws and that he called his wife to let her know that they should start without him. He must have been in good spirits and not stressed about being late if he decided to pull over and let a stranger into his car, but regardless, Gary never made it home. Holding Gary at gunpoint, Larry ordered him into the trunk of his own vehicle and told him to stay quiet. When Gary continued to bang and make noise, Larry bound him with a rope and shot him twice in the head with a 22. Larry proceeded to drive the car for hours and eventually ended up at a gas station in Elkhart, Indiana, sometime on May 30th. 
Elkhart is just near the state lines of both Indiana and Michigan. Larry pulled into the gas station and robbed the store at gunpoint. The lone attendant, Charles Cinder, was shot with a 22 and $100 was stolen from the cash register. Larry fled the scene and Charlie's body was found quickly by a group of fishermen who stopped at the gas station. And once again, police set up roadblocks in the area, hoping to catch the killer before he got away. Larry approached one of the roadblocks and drove through it without being questioned, all while driving a stolen car with the owner dead in the trunk. He was so calm and collected that he didn't arouse any suspicion. Larry then took the car back to the area where Gary picked him up and left it on the side of the road to be found with Gary's body still in the trunk. Gary's panicked wife went to the police station to report her husband missing. And while she was there, she overheard the details of a car that had been found abandoned on the side of the road. Based on the description, she knew it was the same car that Gary drove. The vehicle was brought in to be searched, and Gary's body was found in the trunk. Later reports would indicate a time of death between 6 a.m. and 2 p.m. on the day that the car was found. Police suspected a link between Gary Smock and Charles Snyder's murders. Both murders were two men killed on the same day in a similar area and both were shot with a 22. Police were also toying with the idea that there was a link between Charles Snyder's murder and the murders of Charlie Sizemore and Vernon LeBen, as they were all gas station attendants who had been shot during the course of a robbery. And while the police didn't have any suspects, it wouldn't be long before they would make an arrest. On June 4th, Larry confessed his crimes to Sue, his former girlfriend, and the woman who repeatedly rejected his marriage proposals. Some reports suggest that Larry was threatening suicide during the course of this confession, and Sue, who was unsure of what to do with this information, called her mother and a friend, and one of them reported the confession to the police. Just before midnight on June 4, 1964, police arrived and took Larry into custody. At the time of his arrest, he was wearing Gary Smock's shoes, which he took with him after the murder. While in the police car en route to the station, Larry confessed to killing Gary and four more people and then asked to speak to a priest. In Larry's backseat police car confession, he gave details about Gary's murder, as well as a still unknown and unfound man in Nevada who Larry murdered after he offered him a ride. He also confessed to all three gas station attendant murders that the police had began to suspect were linked. Once at the station, the request for a priest was granted, and Larry spent an hour speaking privately with him. When they were finished talking, Larry was spoken to by a police officer who informed him of his right to a lawyer. Larry waived this right and repeated his backseat confession. When he was arraigned at 3 a.m. on the 5th, the judge also told him that he had the right to an attorney, and once again, he declined. A psychiatric consultation was ordered at 4.30 a.m., 
Initially, they were going to transport Larry to the hospital, but Dr. Schreier called back and changed the plan, saying he would examine Larry at the station and would bring another doctor with him for a second opinion. These doctors had previously treated Larry when he was hospitalized after his suicide attempt, so they were familiar with Larry and his diagnosis from his last hospital stay. Just before the doctors arrived, Larry said he'd changed his mind and he wanted a lawyer after all. His request for his lawyer was not immediately fulfilled, because he was told no lawyer was available at such an early hour. The psychiatric consultation happened without an attorney to consult with, and Larry didn't have a lawyer assigned until the afternoon the next day. Although Larry confessed to five murders, he was only charged with one, the murder of Gary Smock. Larry and his defense team decided to use the insanity defense. The doctors that did the psychiatric evaluation at the station testified for the prosecution and said that Larry was not insane at the time of the murders. It was argued that the testimony of the doctors should not be allowed since it violated Larry's Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. The Sixth Amendment guarantees an attorney if one is desired, and the defense argued that this right was violated when Larry was not provided with an attorney when he asked for one before his psychiatric assessment. This argument was unsuccessful, and the testimony of the doctors was allowed. Experts that testified for the defense said that Larry was acting out a kind of revenge killing against his father and that he was insane at the time of the murder. However, the jury agreed with the prosecution and Larry was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Larry appealed and was granted a new trial. The appeal judges decided that being questioned by the doctors without a lawyer present or without having the opportunity to consult with a lawyer before the examination did violate Larry's rights. It was decided that Larry's examination should have been postponed until he had a lawyer. Larry was held in prison while he awaited his new trial. At first, Larry was going to use the insanity defense for a second time. However, he decided that he wanted to plead guilty when he... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. saw that the insanity defense wasn't going to work this time either. In an exchange for his guilty plea, Larry asked that he be transferred to another prison, one that was nicer, and he asked that he be allowed to change his name. In his second trial, Larry was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Gary Smock and was again sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As per his request, Larry was allowed to change his name to Monk Steppenwolf, but for clarity, I'll just continue to call him Larry. In a 1986 Detroit Free Press article, it stated that after Larry went to prison, Danny was in a relationship with Sue, who was the woman who declined Larry's previous proposals. However, the dates and the extent of this relationship is unclear. When their relationship ended, Danny married Paula, the woman that both brothers had dated on and off. However, it was quickly realized that Paula pined for Larry, and she wrote him many letters. Eventually, his wife pining after his incarcerated brother became too much, and Danny left Paula in 1967 in a fit of jealousy. After he left, he made his way to Wyoming, where he was arrested and went to prison. An April 12, 1967 newspaper article states that he was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. When Larry got out of prison in Wyoming, he went home to Paula in Michigan. They broke up again in the late 1960s, and Danny was arrested in 1969 for assault with a deadly weapon. When he was in prison this time, Paula filed for divorce. Danny was paroled in mid-February of 1972. He was 28 years old and began working as a gas station attendant, which is kind of an odd position for someone whose brother had confessed to and was currently in prison for killing three gas station attendants. Shortly after he was released, Danny committed his first murder. On Saturday, March 18, 1972, 28-year-old Patricia Hauk had been shopping at a discount store with her son, who was just 17 months old. Danny approached Patricia in the parking lot as she exited the store. Danny proceeded to kidnap Patricia and then beat, raped, and murdered her before leaving her body behind a grain elevator in Kalamazoo Township. Her son wandered alone, crying for his mother, until he was found by a woman who saw him dirty and covered in blood. The boy was not injured. The blood he was covered in belonged to his mother. Patricia's body was found by the woman who found the toddler. Her hands were tied and a plastic cord was around her neck, and there were stab wounds in her back. Her car was found in the store parking lot where she was last seen alive. 
Thomas, who was Patricia's husband, reported Patricia and their son missing when it started getting late and they still hadn't returned home. This call allowed the police to reunite the father and son quickly. As this was 1972, there were no security cameras in the parking lot and there were no eyewitnesses. So police had very little information to start their investigation with. In early July 1972, Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup, both 19, stopped in at the gas station where Danny worked as an attendant. Their roommates had left from Chicago on the 5th or 6th of July, and they were headed to Ann Arbor to visit a relative. Likely just needing gas, snacks, and a rest from the road, they had stopped in at the Kalamazoo gas station. Instead of serving the women, Danny convinced his 15-year-old co-worker to help him commit his next crime. Danny and Brent Coster kidnapped the women and drove them to a secluded location at the end of a dead-end street, where both men raped and killed the women. They then abandoned the women's bodies in their car, putting both of them in the back seat and covering them with a blanket. Then Danny and Brent returned to their lives as if nothing had happened. Linda and Claudia were reported missing by their families on July 9th when they failed to arrive in Ann Arbor as planned. On July 17th, more than 10 days after they were last seen in Chicago, a passing motorist reported seeing the abandoned car. The car had been driven through a wire fence into a wooden area, so it was not immediately visible to anyone driving past the area. When the police investigated the report of the abandoned car, they found it was the car from the missing person's report and that it was registered to Linda's father. Upon closer examination of the scene, investigators found two bodies under a blanket on the back seat of the vehicle. Due to the lengthy time between the murders and the discovery of the bodies in the summer heat, the bodies were badly decomposed. The women's purses were in the car, but no money was found. The police were reasonably sure about the identities of the bodies, however they needed to formally identify them using forensics. Linda was formally identified through fingerprints and dental records, which led police to assume that the other body belonged to Claudia. Her positive ID came later, as it was reported that she didn't have fingerprints or dental records to compare to. The initial theory was that the girls picked up a hitchhiker or were carjacked. Abduction was not considered, and the police had very few leads. However, they noted the similarities between the murder of Patricia Houck and these two young women. The initial cause of death of Linda and Claudia was strangulation, and in both cases the women were kidnapped, bound, and had cord around their necks, although one difference is that Patricia was stabbed. In early August, Danny and Brent killed again. They kidnapped, raped, and murdered 18-year-old Pamela Fearnow, who was a student at Western Michigan University. They suffocated her with a plastic bag before dumping her body into a secluded area near a lake. Some documents incorrectly name Pamela as Patricia. However, Pamela is the name on the court documents, so there may have been some sort of transcription errors. 
Pamela was reported as missing, and police actively tried to locate her. Around a month after Pamela's murder, Brent, who was overcome with guilt for his role in the killings, went to the police and confessed to everything. Brent told the police about his role in the murders, however, he insisted that they were Danny's idea and that he was just doing what he was told. Both Brent and Danny were arrested on September 4th for the murders of Patricia Houck, Linda Clark, and Claudia Bidstrup. Danny was first charged with the murders of Linda and Claudia, and soon after charged with the murder of Patricia. Brent was offered a second-degree murder plea for one of the murders with a minimum sentence if he cooperated. Due to the nature of his crimes, he was being charged as an adult, even though he was only 15 at the time. The decision to try him as an adult was appealed, but ultimately upheld. If Brent cooperated, all other charges would be dropped, and he would receive a reduced sentence for the murder of Linda Clark. He agreed to the conditions of the plea and became a witness for the prosecution. Brent led the police to Pamela Fiernow's body, which was dumped only a mile from where Claudia and Linda were found, and this led to Danny's fourth murder charge. Although he was not involved in Patricia's murder, Danny told Brent all about the crime, and Brent agreed to testify at trial. He became the star witness in that case. Unlike his brother, who sang like a canary and confessed to everything, Danny insisted that he was innocent. His actions in prison, however, suggested that he was a man with something to hide. While awaiting trial, Danny allegedly tried to put a hit out on Brent and asked his cellmate if he knew anyone who would kill him. With no other witnesses and no physical evidence linking him to the crime, the prosecution's case hinged entirely on Brent's testimony. If Brent was unable to testify, there wouldn't be enough evidence to find Danny guilty. Danny also tried to convince another man, Richard Fee, to testify for the defense. He asked Richard to lie on the stand and say that Brent had lied about Danny's involvement in the murders. Both men declined to help Danny and ended up testifying for the prosecution. Larry entered a not guilty plea for the first trial, which was for the rape and murder of Patricia Houck. After a short trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. His next charge was for the murder of Pamela Fiernow, where he again entered a not guilty plea and was again found guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison in solitary confinement and assigned hard labor. By the time his next trial started for the murders of Linda and Claudia, Danny had entered a plea of no contest, because he was already spending the rest of his life in prison regardless of the outcome of this trial. He appealed this conviction, but the conviction was upheld. Brent was found guilty of the second-degree murder of Linda Clark. Despite being cooperative and being told that he would have a lighter sentence, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, which would have been his sentence even if he hadn't cooperated. Brent is now 64 years old and is housed at the Thumb Correctional Facility, which is a lower-level security prison in Lapeer, Michigan.
While serving his life sentence, Larry and Paula, Danny's ex-wife, continued their relationship. In 1976, Larry and Paula got married. They would later divorce, and Larry entered a relationship with a former prison worker. Both Larry and Danny are in prison and will be for the rest of their lives. Larry, who's now known as Monk Steppenwolf, is imprisoned at the Saginaw Correctional Facility. At the time of this recording, he's 75 years old and has been in prison for over 50 years. Danny is at the Lakeland Correctional Facility, and at the time of this recording, he's 77. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to source material and further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. I would like to thank Jess for her research and writing in this episode. And if you have a second, head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.